0: there was not really a reason to pay anybody right there were no stores accepting anything and then Big came and spun up several nodes and basically provided inbound liquidity to random nodes i can basically completely on my own decide what i want to work on what i think is important for the network to work on um and, and do it in my own way and own pace so to speak i was actually recently wondering if if i put my like optimization criteria, to become as rich as I wanted to be. How much would I earn in this space if I would just like solely focus on, on making money? I mean, this would be a fun experiment to some degree, um, but, but I decided for other things. With my method, if I have a lightning node that has a Bitcoin on it, and somebody else has a Bitcoin of inbound liquidity, probably I can send it over the network. If we don't provide reliability, basic reliability on a protocol level, on the long term, we're gonna be in a very messy situation. More liquidity is not necessarily a good thing. It, it may be, right? But, but it depends, right? It's really complicated.
1: Rene Picard is an independent researcher working on improving Lightning Network payments. In our conversation, Rene discussed some of the pros and cons and his overall experience being an independent researcher in the Bitcoin ecosystem. We discussed how multi-part payments and zero base fees can contribute to improving payments on the Lightning Network. And we also discussed some of the limitations and some of the challenges of using the Lightning Network today. I've also added Renee to today's show splits. So if you guys enjoy this show, if you learn something new and you wanna support it, the best way you can do that is by sending in sats. All the sats that you send in over the Lightning Network will be split 50-50 between myself and Renee and uh, we'll both be able to read your comments and questions. Quick shout out before we get into the episode, today's show is sponsored by Voltage. Voltage is the industry standard and next generation provider of Lightning Network infrastructure. Today's show is also sponsored by Zebedee. That's Z-E-B-E-D-E-E, and Zebedee is your portal into the world of Bitcoin gaming. We'll have more from Voltage and Zebedee later in the show. Renee, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on today. And I've got a lot of questions for you. You're an independent researcher working on Lightning. And you're, you're in a sphere of the Lightning Network that I'm not super familiar with. So I got a lot of questions. I'm sure the audience is going to enjoy this one. Um, can we maybe start off with your background in Lightning? And maybe the, the moment you first discovered the Lightning Network and the, fir- the moment you first recognized that it was an important technology worth studying?
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, so, so hi, Kevin. Thanks for inviting me to the show. I hope uh, that we can make a great uh, show for your audience. Um, so I basically discovered the Lightning Network in early 2018 when Christian Decker published a blog post on the Blockstream blog uh, where they basically said, hey, we have an implementation now that is reckless on, on Mainnet. Um, and a friend sent this to me and said, hey, um, it seems like blockchain systems might scale after all. <laughs> Right, so um, my background is I'm a mathematician, uh, and I worked in data science. So my main topics were statistical analysis, machine learning, but also scaling of web architectures and scaling of software architectures in general. Right, so basically, a friend said, "Hey, look, this this thing might work," um, and I started like reading the blog article. Um, I spun up my first Bitcoin node ever, <laughs> which was a very frustrating moment because it took like almost a week for initial block download. Um, and then I couldn't really start payment channels because like, how would I fund this? Um, on-chain fees were really high. Um, but I read the lightning white paper and I literally got nerd, snipe, snipe, uh, nerd sniped by it, <laughs> right? So uh, I found this a really intriguing solution. Um, and basically in my spare time, I started reading more and more. So I think I uh, wrote the German Wikipedia article. I posted some really dumb questions to the mailing list Um, And then in June of 2018, I saw that there was the Lightning Hack Day organized by Fulmo in Berlin. And uh, I'm not located in Berlin, but I had an appointment on on that weekend in Berlin anyway. So I was like, hey, I could give it a try and go there. Um, So so I went there and it was uh, basically this life-changing moment for me. Because Uh um, it was the first time I I had ever contact with Bitcoiners. Like There were a lot of Bitcoiners, obviously, in this event. And um, I realized that over the past couple months, I actually have learned quite a bit about the Lightning Network. Obviously, not as much as I know nowadays, but it was certainly enough to have um, qualified discussions with some of the developers. And basically, from that day on, I started to work on Lightning like on a daily basis.
1: Right. What was the what was the discussion like in 2018? What was the the vibe of that conference? What, What did you have in mind for like where the Lightning Network was headed then and how has that evolved in the last four years?
0: So in the discussion I think a lot of people from Lightning Labs were there Um, and I remember one of the first things that I discovered on the Lightning Network and I didn't understand that this was not part of the protocol at this point was the so-called autopilot of um, Lightning uh, LND. And the autopilot is a feature in LND that automatically would open channels for you. And when I looked at the code, um, I had the feeling that this was really poorly implemented. And I think it's the very first issue I ever opened in a repository when basically saying, "Hey, you're doing this like Barabasi-Albert model to like make recommendations for channels." Is that really reasonable. So so I remember in this lightning hack day, I even, um, it was like a barcamp kind of style. So I had a session where I was saying, hey, can we discuss like different types of strategies? Um, boy, little did I know that this problem is actually one of the larger challenges on lightning network. I mean, nowadays, if you talk about all the routing nodes, the main challenge they have is like, where do they want to provide their liquidity and why? Um, and I think to some degree, it's still a very unsolved question. <laughs> Um, but I already had the feeling that this question is related to routing and reliability. So um, it was more like a kind of like common sense computer science feeling that I had, rather than like a deep understanding of how lightning works and how how behavior of people on the lightning network is. But yeah, there was a lot of discussion uh, around this, obviously, because I opened the Barcamp session. Um, and the other thing was, I think the Raspy Blitz project was kind of born there. So there was Rootsall who brought all this like little Raspberry Pis and was like, hey, let's have a hack table and try to install a lightning node there. So I think the Git repository wasn't live yet at this point, but it was kind of like born, like people were like playing around with this idea. And it was really funny, like almost nobody had a lightning node running there. Like I had a lightning node on my machine running and I remember that I was still like uh, syncing some blockchain data while I was um, like arriving in Berlin, right because my node was offline for some time right So when I was like going to the to the to the Wi-fi I was basically syncing the rest of the blockchain like the last like half percent or so so that I could like have my lightning node running and and do stuff.
1: yeah, what's the most surprising thing then that's happened since then? like having gone from that stage where basically no one was even running a lightning node to now having this flourishing ecosystem of apps and and you know like we have a country that has (laughs) taken the lightning network and adopted it Uh, you know like what what's been the most surprising uh event to you so i mean a lot of
0: the like really surprising things were actually really going on in the early days and when i say early days i'm talking about my early days right i mean obviously people have been developing for this for like already three years and i didn't know that so i can't talk about those early days um, but I certainly remember um, at some point in time Ellen Big showing up and just dropping 200 Bitcoins of liquidity to the Lightning Network. So, what has happened before is like basically people testing this with like really smallish channels, routing almost always failed because the graph was just not very well connected and most of the channels were one sided. There was not really a reason to pay anybody, right? There were no stores accepting anything. And then Ellen Big came and spun up several nodes and basically provided inbound liquidity to random nodes, right? And as soon as somebody would also open a channel with Ellen Big, then you would almost certainly be be able to like route to somebody else. Um, so so this was certainly um, a huge game changer in this phase. And then the other thing that I remember, I don't know if if you remember this, was the Lightning Torch by Hordelnode. So um, that was actually a fun one. Um, like in my Twitter, I was like very active in this like lightning focused groups. And at one point in time, I saw people like sending invoices to each other and being like, hey, let's add 10,000 Satoshi at a time. And I was literally going home talking to my uh, fiance at that time saying like, hey, there's this weird thing happening. This is so dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And like it was really annoying me for one or two days, um, like stuffing my twitter timeline but after two days i think i grasped the severity of this and i was like i want to do this too and i basically pinged somebody's like hey send the torch to me and then somebody already was like hey i want to have it next so i sent it to stefan uh with whom i also wrote the paper about multi-part payments and uh at that time, I was in, in Germany in a small magazine trying to see if I wanted to like do reporting about lightning. And I was actually the first person writing an, a media article about the lightning torch thing. So, wow. So even though I ignored it in the very beginning, I was still very early. <laughs> Uh, and then at some point in time, uh, Jack obviously got it, Jack Dorsey, and then it just exploded like everybody wanted it, like all those like super famous people had the torch, like it was literally impossible to get it back. Okay. Um, <laughs> and yeah, uh, that that was a, a, like a kind of surprising thing, because I think it was not really planned.
1: Uh, I think not was just like playing around and messing around, and it just got viral. Right. Yeah, it was just like a spontaneous community yeah. thing that just developed. Yes. Um Okay, I wanna I wanna get into routing in a minute, but sure. first I wanna I wanna talk a bit about the, the book that you're a you're a co-author on, uh, yes. Mastering the Lightning Network. So this is one of the foundational. There you go, <laughs> listeners or video viewers can see that. Um, this is one of the foundational books of the Lightning Network. Uh, and you. <laughs> I I enjoyed the, the parts that I could get through. It's a very technical book, but like you know the early early chapters were. I felt like I could understand some of the um, uh, discussion there, but I- I'd love to learn more about what you picked up in that process of writing it and like what some of those things you learned about The Lightning Network were.
0: Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so maybe maybe I can go one step back and explain how this book actually came to happen. Sure. Um, so. As I said, in 2018, I joined the space and obviously I was still learning a lot of things. And I have been working in education basically my entire life. Um, And for me, it was always the case that when I can explain something to somebody, I understand this very well. So I started in 2018 to do like technical YouTube videos about the Lightning Network but um, I understood that a lot of people do not want to watch a technical YouTube video, right? They like to watch a YouTube video that is entertaining or they like to watch a YouTube video that is like a podcast, but a technical video is not necessarily the thing, especially developers. Um, So between 2018 and 2019, there was the Chaos Communication Congress in Leipzig, which is like one of the big uh, hacker get-togethers in Germany. but like 20,000 people come and they have like a Bitcoin table there. I was talking to a few people and I realized I think I should write a book about the Lightning Network, right? It's missing. Like a lot of people were coming to a Stack Exchange, to Telegram channels, asking really basic ch- uh, questions all the time over and over again. And I had the feeling I want to write a book about the Lightning Network. So what I did is... Um, I, I, I sat down and I had—I have another book I can show to, to the people who, who are in the audience. Uh, and it looked like this, um, which was like the Lightning Network book by the Bitcoin community. <laughs> um, and I basically uh, announced that I would want to write the Lightning Network book in 2019. Uh, and I opened a fundraiser and I hoped at that time that I would be able to collect 21 Bitcoin. <laughs> Which, um, if we remember back the time was roughly the equivalent of I think seventy-five thousand dollars. Um, there was a lot of excitement going on. I was able to collect one and one point two Bitcoin basically, <laughs> which is not quite the same. Um, but I was very obnoxious at that time. I was like literally starting to write the book. And then Andreas reached out and he was like, Hey Renee, why don't we do this together? Um he he said that he was already planning this, he already talked with O'Reilly. Um He had Beef on board, who also wanted to support this effort. And then we said, yeah, well, we could do this with three people together. Um, And that being said, the things that I learned most about were less technical, but more of how to collaborate with three people that have a very, very different perspective.
1: Right. Right. Now, if you were to, to pick out all the topics covered in the book and if you could get up in front of all Bitcoiners today and share one topic or or explain one topic, maybe something that's often misunderstood in the Lightning Network, what would that topic be if you could pick one from the book?
0: I think in general, we have this, like, I think it's chapter three, where we basically talk about how the Lightning Network works, right, which is kind of like an overview of all the components that are included in this, like the payment channels, the routing. Um, and I think there are still a lot of misconceptions out there. So I would probably pick that and say to people, hey, read this. Um, we tried to make chapter three very accessible uh, in the sense of even if you are not a programmer, you should probably be able to get your head around. I mean, if you understand Bitcoin, it certainly helps. Uh-huh. Um, so, so that's probably one point. The other thing that Andreas at some point in time told me is like my most valuable contribution to the book is in the beginning of part two we have this diagram this layered architecture of how the protocol works um, and i mean what is true is that we had a lot of discussions of how to organize the book and where to put what chapter and as soon as we had this diagram basically part two of the book wrote itself <laughs> right, right so so this diagram certainly helped us a lot to, to understand how to structure stuff um, because the protocol itself is, is quite like there's a lot of things depending on each other um, and in this diagram kind of like put a little bit of like order in it and, and, and clean certain things up. Um, yeah.
1: Interesting. Um, okay. So, now in writing this book and, and even beforehand, you, it's, it seems like you had um, a passion for doing things independently, having started your own book almost on your own and then, and then coming on board with the other two co-authors. Um, and now you're an independent researcher. Yeah. Can you talk to me about that experience as an independent researcher? what are some of the pros and cons of you know trying to trying to create and and you know do great research without yeah. being under a corporate um you know being under a corporation
0: yeah so so i guess the, the the biggest advantage is it gives me a lot of freedom right i can basically completely on my own decide what i want to work on what i think is important for the network to work on um, and, and do it in my own way and own pace, so to speak Right. Um, If if you want to do corporate research or even university research, you often have to write proposals, you have to convince people that this may or may not be interesting. And especially the donors might give you feedback and say, hey, we would like to fund you. But if you would do it a little bit differently, like if you would go in this direction. Right. So um, in that sense, I think the the biggest advantage is like the vast degree of freedom that you get. Um, this, of course, comes to a certain price, and that is uh, especially the, one, the price that I already touched is the funding. Right For, for a long time, I was heavily underfunded. Um, this has changed quite a bit with the results that we presented last year. Um, since then, my, my funding situation has improved quite drastically. Um, but before that, for the first two years, I was basically um, always looking out for ways of like getting reimbursed for the stuff that I would be doing and the biggest problem was is companies of course were seeking out and asking my advice for consulting but the first thing that usually happens is like here's your nda and i'm oh. like i cannot operate on under this right um i don't want to operate under this right i think there are certain things in the space where it's important that everybody has a shared knowledge and a shared common sense of what is going on so even if you go to certain open source companies you cannot talk about everything that you're doing publicly everything is very political Right, because there are business models involved and um, I'm just not bound by these things.
1: Right. And so now if, if someone is considering taking the path of being an independent researcher, now that you've mm-hmm. gone through this experience and you've kind of seen you know, the struggles of getting funded and then now in a position where you, you, you are funded and you feel like you can um, you know, commit your time to, your, to doing your research, what what's the playbook here? What's the what do you suggest when other people say, "Hey, I want to be an independent researcher as well"?
0: Yeah, so so what I did basically is the way how I like secured funding was by finding a position at a university, right? So you could already argue, well, you're not independent anymore because you have a tie with the university. Um, but I was lucky to be like a good negotiator there, <laughs> so I was basically negotiating that I can decide my topics and projects on my own. And I made it very clear from day on, if that is not the case, like if this is just a promise, I will be gone, right? Um, And find something else. Um, And I I think the leverage that I had is that it was always clear that I could find a job outside of the university. Um, And I think this is also one of the problems, right? I mean, of course, it's very easy to be be an independent researcher if you're just rich. (laughs) Right. I am not rich, right? I had to make this deal and basically make this bluff in the university of saying, I, I, I do have different options, right? Oh. But um, so, so yeah, you need to find a certain space. Also what certainly helped me is um, when I was on this first lightning hack day, uh, one of the Bitcoin OGs that was there was basically looking at me is like, why do I not know you? Why have you never been here? Like, you seem to know quite a bit. Like, well, I'm doing other stuff. And, and the person was like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm a data science consultant. Um and he's like, why don't you work on Lightning? I'm like, yeah, I do in my free time. And he's like, yeah, well, I could give you a monthly stipend. <laughs> and then you could like work more on Lightning, right? So, So I think that was a very fortunate thing because this person was not very technical. And he just basically saw this as a bootstrapping kind of thing. So in my first year, I was basically being funded in this way. The stipend was not like really high, but uh, the deal was basically, hey, you do your data science consulting, but don't acquire customers too heavily. Like whenever you have free time, just work on Lightning because your basic costs are being covered, right? And um, I was just willing to take that, right? So so a, a large part of being an independent researcher is really um, the stamina that comes with it and the deep uh, conviction that you want to be independent and that you like think this is important. <laughs>
1: What do you think about the state of independent research in the Bitcoin community? Do you think we're doing a good job of promoting that and and getting people on board and, and able to to the point where they can actually create research themselves or is that something where the Bitcoin community should focus on improving?
0: I mean, I might be not that independent in answering this question, right? So if I speak for my lobby, I would say we could certainly Um, work on improving ways of doing this, right? I mean, there are obviously funding situations and opportunities there. Um, There are the universities which are a great, like, on-ramp for people to become independent. But often in universities, you see people being very bound by university uh, constraints. Um, And, I mean, I would argue independence and freedom is something that just comes at a price. Like, it's not for free, right? You cannot just magically create this. Like... It's, it's something that you have to deliberately decide that you want to do. And then you have to find your work to like fight for your freedom. Um, and if you're willing to do this, I think there are ample opportunities to do that. And if you're not willing to do this, well, then you find other ways, right? So, so I think life in general is to some degree an optimization problem. Um, and it really depends on what you're optimizing for. And me personally, I always liked to optimize for my independence and for my freedom. Maybe that's one of the things that were so attractive in, in Bitcoin in general for me,
1: right? Yeah, it seems like in the last couple of years, I've seen a, um, I've seen one of the the talking points of crypto enthusiasts is that you know everyone everyone can get funding really easily because they're creating they're spinning up a bunch of tokens they're you know there's it, people are they're not necessarily independent but they're able to um, they're able to earn a. a, a large salary for you know creating stuff on other blockchains because they have the component of the new token that they can create and mint mm-hmm. and kind of own. I wonder w- whether or not you think that is a, you know, like how, how does Bitcoin overcome that from a, <laughs> a, that advantage where, you know, we can't necessarily say, hey, we're going to give you this brand new token because we don't have it. And that's a great thing. But it's in the short run, something that uh, it doesn't Maybe it's maybe it's a good thing because it doesn't, it doesn't bring in the people who are looking for a short term gain, I guess. Uh, they get they kind of go towards the crypto projects that will offer that. Mm-hmm. And the Bitcoiners may maybe have to kind of, you know, it, maybe it does attract the people with long term mindsets. I'd um, love to know what, how, what you think about that.
0: I mean, I kind of agree with what you're saying. But I mean, obviously, um, privacy um, is a thing, right? So I don't know who is behind all those like token altcoin projects. I mean, I would assume that potentially some Bitcoiners are also behind them and try to refinance some of the stuff that they are doing. Um, I know that there was this point in 2019 where I was really frustrated about the funding situation that I had. But yeah. I was actually considering to do an April Fools of creating Dogecoin cash, right? I be like, <laughs> hey, I am the real Jack Palmer. And and then I would fork this again and say, hey, this is Dogecoin Satoshi's vision or Jack Palmer's vision or whatever, right? And and I would basically like, I mean, you, you could easily do this if you're a developer, and if you understand these technologies. Right, and I mean, if you do this as an April Fool's joke, like it's even safe, right? You'd be like, "Hey, it was just a joke." But if it pulls off, you'd be like, "Hey, I minted that many coins, right?" It's like it's ridiculously easy to do that. Um, uh-huh. I personally decided against this, right? But again, I just said before, um, I think life is an optimization problem. So I was actually recently wondering if, if I put my like optimization criteria to become as rich as I wanted to be, how much would I earn in this space? If I would just like solely focus on on making money, um, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this would be a fun experiment to some degree, um, but but I decided for other things, right?
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, and it seems like that's the that that does attract a lot of bitcoiners. That that it's not necessarily all about the money. I think to to an extent, it it has to be. We have to get to the point where we can fund people to work on Bitcoin. I think that that for a long time, as you mentioned, like in twenty nineteen. You know, that there, was, there was genuine concern around in, in the community about that. Um, do you think that, that companies building on Bitcoin and, and some of the corporate sponsors, do you think they have a role in, in bringing on people to you know, through grants? I know, I know there's a few companies in the space that are doing that. It's not necessarily independent entirely, but it, it brings on you know, uh, people who are, are dedicated to building on Bitcoin. Do you think that's an important role in the community?
0: Well, so, so for example, I recently accepted a grant from um, a BitMEX, right? So, I mean, you could already question my independence, right? But what I can tell you is that BitMEX is not my own source of funding, right? So, so there's a certain amount of, like, decentralization here. Yeah. Um, and with with the companies being in the space, and I write this on my website, there's obviously always the risk that, that I mentioned before, that they, like, even in university research, like, whoever brings the funds for research or for work, might have a certain say in what the work is about right and in in general it's very hard to onboard people i I mean i think there's some more of bitcoin project where they try like very heavily to onboard people and to attract talent but um, i also can say from my own experience it's actually very frustrating if especially if you come with new ideas right it's much easier if you go to the github repository and look at open issues and you try to solve them then what i did is basically looking at the problem and saying I think we have this problem i think we have that problem and i think this would be interesting right so so you're being like very like to some degree creative but i was talking a language and bringing problems that cryptographers were not necessarily interested in and i have the feeling in the first years it was actually a lot of grinding um to convince people that what i had to say and bring to the space was actually valuable to them um again with the results and with the time this has changed and which is a good thing but um, it's, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a process of long grinding and not many people are willing to, to do this or are in the position to do this, right? I mean, if, yeah. if you are, uh, let's say, a student in the United States, right? So, for example, I come from Germany. For me, studying was free. I, I don't finish college with a huge uh, sum of student debt. Right? But if you're in the United States and you have like a quarter million of student debt, there is not the chance of like, hey, let's continue my student lifestyle for another three years and try to see where this ends, right? I mean, you need to basically pay back your loan,
1: right? So it's 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 really hard for people to do that, actually. Right. Now, I wanna I wanna discuss some of the work you are doing because sure. uh, you wrote you wrote this paper in I believe uh, last year on multi-part payments, mm-hmm. and maybe maybe we can start the conversation off with a discussion about what multi-part payments are and why they're important. Yes. So I basically
0: published two papers last year. Um, the one I actually wrote the year before, but I only published it last year, um, which was the, what I always say, a so-called probabilistic pathfinding paper, <laughs> right? Um, the, the title is a little bit different. It's like security and privacy on the lightning network with uncertain channel balances. But, but the key here is, is whenever I make a payment, I don't know how the liquidity is distributed in the channels that I'm going to use, right? So so Kevin, if we two have a channel, I can easily send money to you on our channel if I know that I have the money. Uh-huh. But if you have another channel, let's say with Andreas, and I want to send money to Andreas over your channel, I mean, I can offer you an HTLC and say, hey, can you please forward 1,000 or 100,000 Satoshis on your channel to Andreas? But what could happen is that you are telling me is, I just don't have that money on the channel with Andreas. But right. then you're going to fail your onion and the payment fails right uh-huh. so so what we did in this first paper is we express the likelihood for payments to settle on the lightning network and when you do all the math theory what you will very easily learn is and it's very intuitively to many people mm-hmm. is the smaller the amount you send the higher the likelihood is that it will settle right right and this is a huge motivation for people to say hey instead of sending the entire amount at once let's just split it into several parts and then send it across different routes through the network because each of the shards that we have has a higher chance of being successful what people have been overlooking in the past or kind of like not taking too seriously was the observation that the more channels are involved in a payment the likelihood of success also falls exponentially, right? So there's this sweet spot. If you have a certain payment size to a certain amount, like if you don't split it, your failure rate will be high. If you split it a little bit, the failure rate decreases, but if you split it too heavily, it increases again, right? So so this entire thing is an optimization problem. Like there is this sweet spot of how you want to split it, right? And most implementations, did initially a very, I would say, poor job in in splitting payments. They would just basically say, hey, let's cut it in half or let's cut it into 10 chunks of equal size, right? Um, but if you want to split it optimally, you might have to send like one chunk that is a little bit larger over like larger channels and one chunk that is a little bit smaller, right? And, and this entire splitting problem is, is this kind of a weird mathematical problem. And this is something that I was, um, yeah, kind of heavily working on in the beginning of last year. <laughs> Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so you're trying to figure out basically like which, if, if, if you and I have, uh, are trying to send a payment back and forth and mm-hmm. there's tens or hundreds of paths that we could potentially take around the network, the idea here is you're trying to figure out like which ones are the optimal paths to take and should it be split up across many paths or should it just be confined to a few uh, yeah. and figure out like exactly. You know what the optimal route is, is that correct? Yes. Yes, exactly.
0: And I have to say optimality obviously can mean different things, right? So for example, for you optimality could mean the lowest fees. Right? For me at that time optimality meant highest reliability, which is equivalent to highest chance for the payment to succeed. So I was maximizing the probability or reducing the uncertainty. Um, cost that is attached to like not knowing how the liquidity is being distributed, right? No. And of course you can, of course you can also combine these two goals, where you say, I want to find something that is optimal with respect to my objective that is minimizing the uncertainty and minimizing the fees, right? Or you could also include something like latency, right? So there's obviously a choice to be made, right? But I was like literally studying this optimization problem, and while studying this optimization problem. Um, like as i said i was a mathematician i was writing this down very formally uh, i already had it written down but i couldn't solve it right oh. <laughs> and i was basically reinventing this entire theory of minimum cost flows that was started to being invented like 60 years around at mit and then stefan richter um, came around a good friend of mine um, who understood the first paper about probabilistic pathfinding and i was like stefan I have this thing i think this is working i think this is optimal but i cannot prove this and i don't want to publish this if i cannot prove this (laughs) can you give me some feedback and he's looking at what i'm doing and he's like renee can you please stop being so dumb i'm like what do you mean and he's like i'm paraphrasing him right like i mean he he might might not have said this literally but he's like the stuff that you're doing this must have been solved already i'm like i know i tried to search for it in the literature i didn't find anything turned out i used the wrong terms and after a week or so, Stefan came back to me, and he's like, hey, there's this thing called minimum cost flows, you should really look at this. So then we were basically like one month just reading a 1000 pages book about minimum cost flows. And we were realizing everything that I was trying to like reinvent and prove was already solved by the people at MIT and some other universities. So then we could basically apply this entire theory of logistics and
1: yeah and this minimum cost flow idea this was outside of the lightning network right this is totally kind of totally field.
0: so 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 this is in a field that is called operation research and um, you know i mean the older you get the harder it is to be intimidated by certain things but last week i was at mit and before i went to the website of the operation research uh, council that's their department that is doing this and i was just looking at this and i was so intimidated it's it's unbelievable <laughs> i mean um, it's hardly known to to people outside of math but the min cost for problem is i would say probably one of the mostly spread optimization mechanisms or solvers that we are using so for example the entire COVID response that they did in the united states um they have like uh, was basically consulted by the mit department there Um, because there's a lot of logistics involved like how do you move the vaccines like how do you get this to certain spots right i think this entire field operation research came originally from military where you also ask yourself like how do you do the logistics of getting certain things at certain places right so so you can already feel it's very similar to lightning like how do you get your satoshis from your node to another node right and you have a certain cost attached to each channel and the cost again might be the fees it might be the uncertainty like whatever you model into this um and right. yeah, I mean, our observation in this paper was basically like, initially, I thought I would solve a tiny problem of like splitting this optimally, <laughs> right? But what, what what turned out is that splitting this optimally leads actually to a huge improvement in the amounts that we can send over the Lightning Network. So I think oh. last year, everybody agreed like, yeah, if you want to send 100,000 Satoshis or 200,000 Satoshis, that usually works. But as soon as the amounts get larger, like you have really high failure rates, with my method if i have a lightning node that has a bitcoin on it and somebody else has a bitcoin of inbound liquidity probably i can send it over the network wow Right? i might not want to do it because the fees that i pay on lightning are higher than an on-chain transaction but if we use lightning more and more and on-chain transactions might also rise because more channels are being opened and closed right maybe one bitcoin and paying the fees on lightning might be feasible right mm-hmm. so um yeah i mean this this is a total game changer
1: yeah and this is, this is something I've actually heard from a number of people in the space that in, in the last couple of years, the reliability of payments has dramatically improved. And is this, do you think that a, a reason for this is because of the multi-part payments? Uh, personally, like I've only been in the space for about a year or so, and I've noticed a, a little bit of an improvement in sending payments back in, you know, 2021, whenever I'd try and send payments, a, a lot of my first ones failed and I, I wasn't, I was getting frustrated with, with trying to figure out how the node worked and why you know, I, couldn't, I couldn't do uh, certain transactions, and uh, now it seems like I've got a lot less concern about that, and, and I go into a payment uh, doing roughly the same amount, you know hundreds of thousands of sats, and I, I feel relatively confident now that it's going through. I guess, to what would you attribute that increase in reliability? Are there many factors so- at
0: play? So, so first of all, try a million to my node, and you will see that you run into problems so or like, like try 10 million to, to a note, right? I mean, you can go to my website right now and fetch yourself an invoice and try it. I would argue it's safe to do because you're probably never going to like settle that invoice. Uh, and if you do, I mean, you show me a pre-image, I might reimburse you, right? So yeah, like you could try that, right? Um, if you trusted me that I would reimburse you. but. Um, like now comes my privilege of being independent like I, I i can say things that some other people might not be able to say right our results so far are not being used by anybody in public uh. Right what we currently do have is we have a lot of lightning service providers right we have a lot of custodial wallets that are being used and we have like a small subnetwork of highly reliable nodes that maintain their nodes very heavily they probe the network constantly over and over like if you run a node you see a lot of failed payments at your node and i would argue that many of them are just fake payments where the nodes are just trying to like understand where is the liquidity currently or they might rebalance liquidity to where they believe they will need it in the future and this is the way how they currently improve the reliability of the network. So this is currently happening with trusted providers or with companies who try to like see this as a business opportunity, whereas on the protocol end, the protocol is highly unreliable still, uh. right? So, so if I make the comparison to the internet protocol, we have the base layer, which is like Ethernet, Wi-Fi, DSL, T1, cable, whatever, right, these things. And then you have the internet layer, which is the IP protocol, the internet protocol. And then on top of this, we have TCP, which is like reliability, flow control, congestion control. And then only you have applications like HTTP, like the World Wide Web or email. right? Whereas on the Lightning Network, we have the base layer for security that is Bitcoin. Then we have the Lightning Network that does routing. But the Lightning Network protocol itself has nothing that does reliability so the entire reliability thing is basically solved on the application layer so we're basically skipping the reliability layer currently and i am actually more and more strongly advocating for hey we should really include this into the protocol i'm becoming much more vocal these days of saying we really need this Um, i understand that companies have a business opportunity there Um, but but i think if we don't provide reliability basic reliability on a protocol level On the long term we're going to be in a very messy situation
1: and when you say basic reliability do you mean applying this version of multi-path payments or multi-part payments to um all the lightning implementations
0: no so the 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 assumption that i made in my research was that if you choose paths to send your satoshis that are very likely to succeed that this will be good for you and like you will feel an increase in reliability, right? But this is something that any LSP can already do. So maybe some people are already using my mechanism, but they're just not publicly doing this, right? I mean, a lot of LSPs have a lot of proprietary software, so maybe they read my paper, maybe they're just doing this internally. This is nothing that happens on the protocol level, right? However, there is a huge problem with also the solution that I provide. Because if you send out that many HTLCs, what could happen is one node might just not forward your HTLC for the next 10 hours. Uh. What happens then? Right, right now, if you send out an onion, it's fire and forget. Right, You send out the onion, and the only way that you know that it arrived at you. So for example, let's say we don't have a direct channel. So I sent out an onion to you. The only way that I know that it received is if you release the pre-image. Uh-huh. Right? And if I do a multi-part payment on a protocol level, what I do is I split my payment into several chunks, I send out all those onions, and you will only release the pre-image if all of the onions have arrived. Right, So if only one single node is not forwarding this onion, all of those payments are stalled. <laughs> nothing is working for like the next 10 hours. <laughs> right, oh. And this is actually what, something that is happening, even with my solution. Right, But I can do nothing about it. Right, this is a protocol issue. Like, nobody can do something about this. Right? So I can give you the optimal way of doing the like, selection of candidate onions, but even with the optimal selection, we might have bad actors and, and they might not even be malicious. I mean, they might just be poorly configured or going offline in the wrong moment. Like, I mean, there might, there might be several like, reasonable uh, reasons why a payment might get stuck. Right? And on a protocol level, we cannot resolve this right now.
1: Um, How could we resolve it in the future?
0: So, we recently integrated Taproot into um, Bitcoin, and with Taproot, we can basically with Schnorr shi- signatures, but I mean, they're part of the Taproot upgrade, so that's why I said Taproot, but the Schnorr signature is actually the important part here. With Schnorr signatures, we can do something that is called an adapter signature. And in the Lightning community, this is uh, more commonly known as PTLCs, which are point time lock contracts. This is different to the common uh, HTLCs that we are currently using. And with those, what we can do is, with tricks that go in the direction of Shamir secret sharing, we can basically make payments that we can cancel. Right? So we can basically say, hey, look, this onion is not arriving at the destination. Even if it would arrive in an hour, the destination node could not release the pre-image because it would also need a secret from us. right? So as soon as we migrate the Lightning Network to... A ptlc world we have chances to create something that is called cancelable payments or, or fixed stuck payments or stuckless payments um, for that we would also need something that is called onion messages uh, and acknowledgements that onions have arrived right so currently the acknowledgement that the onion has arrived is the release of the pre-image uh-huh. but what we would do then is we would basically inside the onion return uh, include a return path where the recipient node could basically ping us and say look we received your onion, right? So then I would know out of my 10 onions that I sent, nine are received. The 10th one is not being received in a certain time frame. I will cancel this and I will try another path, right? And this way I can make this quicker, right? Wow, so there, there is a lot of things that have to happen on a protocol level that are currently not in there um, that I think at a certain amount of time, we will need this because otherwise users will feel this.
1: Yeah, so so what does this path to to getting PTLCs adopted look like? How do you how do you think this messy?
0: <laughs> it looks messy. <laughs> so 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 uh, one one problem, and I might have limited knowledge here, um, is that PTLCs and HTLCs do not seem necessarily compatible with each, with each other. Right? So what this means is currently, when you send out an onion, you negotiate an HTLC on every channel across the path, and those HTLCs all commit to the same uh, pre-image. Well, and, and this makes the entire payment atomic, right? The intermediate node cannot like steal it. Right. right, But if you wanted to make a path that uses an HTLC, and then a PTLC, and then an HTLC, this would not work. That's my understanding, right? Maybe there are some tricks that you can work around this that I'm just not aware of, but, but this is my current understanding. So please, if somebody wants to correct this, um, I'd be happy to learn. Um, so, So what we would have to do is, first of all, we would have to make a protocol upgrade where everybody who's running Lightning right now agrees on, this is how we speak with PTLCs. And then, of course, the channels, would have to support this they would have to signal this on gossip and then i could basically see if i can find a connected path from me to you to only use ptlcs
1: so when you say a protocol upgrade are you referring to like adding another bolt is that is that how that would be expressed or
0: yeah so um I mean, you could see it as a separate bolt, but I guess what is more realistic is that we are adding this to the existing bolts, right? So the problem with the bolts is even though we tried to, or even though initially they tried to, like, have um, separate orders of concerns, there are now a lot of cross-independencies. And um, my feeling is that we probably would just include this to the various bowls right so for example the entire channel state machine is explained in bowl two so here you could basically say hey um there is a message so far that was called update add htlc now we need one that is update add ptlc right but then for the onion routing we need to like understand how we like settle this and how we do the on chain transactions and resolve of channels right and then and then we really need to wonder of how can we upgrade this <laughs> um uh. so yeah that's okay. that's going to be a really complicated process with a lot of people
1: working on it i see yeah. now when when you're thinking about routing payments more generally on the network mm-hmm. um, and you have a few different constraints you can you can um, optimize for one mm-hmm. could be reliability it could be uh, latency it could be fees what do you think we should be optimizing for in the lightning network like i, I know there are every different party will have a different different answer here but what what do you think the lightning network uh needs more of today
0: yeah so i mean traditionally everybody was optimizing for fees um and the reliability was really bad right i mean unless you did like really like 100 satoshi payments nothing worked initially right i mean it became better with people maintaining their notes but even rebalancing is kind of like tricky because if everybody is like routing across low fee routes then Your rebalancing circle will obviously be more expensive because otherwise the node would already have taken that path right so so you would actually pay for rebalancing which was like a long time a discussion so optimizing solely for fees i believe is something that is not sustainable on the long term Um, however if you only optimize for the likelihood to succeed so reliability in that sense um, this is also tricky because then somebody can charge like really high fees if you're just going to pay them, right? So this uh-huh. is also not great. So I think by the end of the day, we need a combination of these two features, potentially also latency, which you could argue is a subpart of reliability. Um, but these are currently the three main features that I see. So the the re- reduction of uncertainty about the liquidity, the latency and the fees that you're going to pay, right? And And you need to find some smart way of combining this into an optimization problem.
1: I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just wanna give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Voltage. Voltage is the industry standard for Lightning Network infrastructure. Creating layer two applications and services on top of Bitcoin starts with Voltage, where you can spin up nodes, get access to liquidity, optimize your node, and much more. Voltage is leading the way as the next generation provider of Lightning Network infrastructure. And if you wanna get a free trial and start using Voltage today, you can do so at voltage.cloud. So when you look at the Lightning Network today and you, you look at those three factors, uh, reliability and fees and latency, how does the Lightning Network compare today to traditional fiat payment yeah. rails or existing rails? Yeah, so
0: I mean, even today, it depends on what you optimize for already. So I have recently released the software that goes along with a paper that we published last year um, which you can find on my GitHub repository under the name Picard Payments, because a lot of people started to calling it this way. And last month, I finally decided that I would also like go along and, and call it this way. And what you can do with those is you can basically already optimize for at least fees and reliability. I'm, I'm working on also including latency. Um, and, and when you do the simulations, what you see is if you optimize solely for reliability, you're gonna pay a fee of roughly 4,000 PPM. Which is like 0.4 percent with the fees that are currently on the network however if you optimize mainly for fees you pay something like 1500 ppm right so that's already like mainly only a third of the price mm-hmm. but you have a lot more failed attempts a lot of more retries right so and, and then you do something in between where you at least according to my simulations as of right now pay something like 2000 ppm which is 0.2 percent um The reliability is obviously not as good as using something like Visa, right? I mean, Visa basically always works as long as your internet connection works of the point of sale system uh, perspective. Here we have much more retries and also the latency is higher. So currently for a single onion or for a single payment to settle, the median time, even when using probabilistic pathfinding, I think Christian measured something like five seconds five point something seconds and that's the median right so 50 percent of the payments take more Uh um and i mean this is something where i used to say there's room for improvement this is also why i want to like look at latency um and for example we can improve latency i think quite a bit if we have l2 channels in the future because the round trip time to negotiate a new state will be reduced right um a lot of these questions are also related to what we implement in the software, right? So for example, right now, all the Lightning implementations optimize for fees. So the nodes are actually trying to like underbid each other with fees. But as soon as our solution is being utilized more, um, what will happen is when you have a large channel that's highly reliable, you can actually from the game theory already charge a higher fee, right? So then you certainly start to like price for liquidity and for a reduction in uncertainty, right? So I would guess that the fee market will have a very different dynamic over the next years when the people who are sending payments actually change their dynamics, right? The same way in including latency into the feature, right? Because Uh now you might like, like currently, my solution even would prefer a very slow channel that goes from Norway to Australia, just because it's a large channel and it's a cheap channel, right? But the latency is obviously really bad, right? And I mean, everybody naturally understands that I should probably take the channel uh, from from uh, Norway to Germany, that is almost the same size and a little bit more expensive, but is much faster to try, right? So, so, so a lot of this like dynamic will actually change if we optimize for different things, because then the people will charge their fees differently, right? So, so it's very hard to foresee these things in the future.
1: Do you think it's realistic to expect? higher fees in the future on lightning yes yeah uh, yes time? and no
0: <laughs> yes yeah. and no so 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 i know for example that the zero fee routing guy was uh, in your show yes. uh, i haven't watched that episode but i have talked to him quite a bit um and and i find it very intriguing what he's doing right because he's basically saying hey look all the implementations are basically optimizing for fees right now so i charge zero fee everybody's routing through me all the people who are rebalancing are using my node. i mean this is great Right? and how does he earn money? He basically asks for uh, the PPM on the inbound liquidity. Yes. But if you think about this, and he probably said this to you, this is very similar to how current payment systems work, right? Because if you are a shop and you want to use this, you, you buy your inbound liquidity at like 2,000 PPM, 3,000 PPM, whatever is the price, right? I mean, it's very similar to installing a point of sale system where you, as the merchant, pay a certain fee in order to like be able to receive money, right? And oh. the customer doesn't see the fee in the moment of making the payment anymore, <laughs> right? So so, so what I'm saying is what, what could very well happen is that the fee on the Lightning Network, because of behavior like this, which to some degree is very rational from the service provider, because if I open the channel with you and I charge a PPM for the routing, the routing actually have to take place, right? That's a risk on my end. Uh-huh. Right? But if I charge zero PPM and you pay me when I open the channel, the risk now is on you. You are the merchant. You're going to be like, yeah, I'm going to like sell products. That's your economic risk. And for me, it's really great, right? So so what I'm saying is the game theory, I think, has not played out yet of what we do. So so it might very well end up in a world where we just don't pay fees for routing at all. But, of course, indirectly, the fees are being paid at channel opening and from the merchants. And then, of course, the consumers pay this in higher prices in the stores. Right. Um, oh. I don't know. <laughs>
1: That That's an interesting possibility where yeah, the it could be just the merchants footing the bill almost or yeah. or just like a a different um, Dynamic between the people who are paying and, and you know people routing maybe doing it for free um, So so
0: so the only thing I want to say here is right I'm not saying that this is certainly how the future will pay out because there are certain reasons Why why I also see that this is problematic what I just like um, try to describe but it's it's really hard to see this. The only thing that I am really certain about is that it will not stay in the way how it's currently being done. <laughs> I think that's sure. very inefficient and, and uh, I think the market will mature.
1: Okay, so now on the topic of uh, zero fee routing, let's get into zero base fee. Sure. I'd love to understand what that concept is and exactly mm-hmm. how it works.
0: Okay, so as I said before, um, I was basically the the first person, then later together with Stefan Richter, of course, my co-author, to extensively study and provide the solution. I mean, maybe people have studied it before, but didn't publish the solution of this optimization problem of routing Satoshis from one node to another, which is this famous min cost flow problem that is basically used everywhere in logistics and finance everywhere, right? Um, and it turns out that the solvers for min- minimum cost-for problems their runtime depends heavily on the cost structure, on the mathematical structure of the cost function. All right. So if your cost function is a linear function, then you have very fast solvers. But if the function is non-linear and non-convex in particular, then the problem is known to be NP-hard. And uh, I mean, there is a huge bounty. To solve NP-hard problems in an efficient way, um, I think currently no sane person in research assumes that this will ever be possible. It's an open research question if it is possible, but I think the the common assumption is that it is not. <laughs> right? So if you have a base fee, the optimization problem for sending nodes to, to send a payment and to solve this minimum cost for problem will become NP-hard, right? which means it's very hard to solve. Um, uh, and just to give you a firm grasp, when 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 we initially understood the min cost for problem and we wrote down our first algorithm, we had an algorithm that was able to like run on the convex cost function. And it took us six seconds to to just solve the problem, right? So if you wanted to make a payment, you would have to wait six seconds until I could tell you these are the candidate paths that you try. And then you still send them out and you still have a certain chance that they fail. And then you have to iterate on this, right? So it's a very poor experience, right? Some people um, who were very critical about our results were like, this takes too much time. Like it's a nice result, but it's unusable. Now with a lot of tricks, I have been able to get this runtime down into like 100 milliseconds, which is very comparable to what nodes currently do to generate candidate paths, right? But mine are like much closer to the optimal solution. But the way how I do this is, I only compute this on the subnetwork that charges zero base fee. (laughs) Like if I would include the channels that have a base fee, I would be completely skewed. Like I couldn't do it, right? Interesting. So, So what we are basically saying is, look, there's a market where you offer routing as a routing node, Right. And of course you want to offer customers to choose the best offer on the market. Right. But they can only do this if there is no base fee. Right. And because and reliability
1: is. Fee.
0: Yeah. And, 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 and because reliability,
1: gets in the way? Sorry. If there is a base fee, it, it gets in the way of determining what the correct path might be or the optimal path. might. Be. Yeah.
0: So, so the algorithm doesn't work like the algorithm that we provide will just not produce a result. And if we were to provide an algorithm that can handle the base fee, the runtime would probably go into the hours. Wow. <laughs> it's like you you would get a ridiculously low runtime for, for principal mathematical reasons. Um, all the proofs have been conducted already 30 years ago, right? So so we didn't, like we only discovered this by understanding the problem and then digging out the relevant research that was already there. Um, so, so, So this is like a well-known mathematical problem. This has been, has not been like, rejected for many years, right? so so we kind of believe this is true. Um, and I think Stefan actually went through the proofs, like he's very theoretical on those, and was like, yeah, I, I think this is uh, reasonable. right? So what we're basically saying is, if we want to have this routing game to be like a game that works, um, maybe node operators and routing node operators should offer the option for zero base fee uh, so that people can do this, what I call a selfish routing, which means finding the best candidate paths according to their optimization goal.
1: Uh-huh. Now this seems like this is an uh, a better way of discovering paths on the network. So my next question is why is this not already implemented? Why why is every node not using zero base fee today?
0: Honestly, that's a question you have to you have to ask to the people who refuse to update their base fee. <laughs> like for example, if you go to Kasten Otto, I don't know if you have talked to him in the past but Uh, carsten otto i think he's he's running one of the most famous like pleb nodes so to speak right so carsten otto he's just a computer scientist who likes lightning network and who's just rebalancing heavily and i think he he likes to play this game of like having a high score and all those like lightning network node explorers and on his website he basically has some instructions of his experience of like how do you run a lightning node and he's like, this is the channel size you should do, this is when you should rebalance, these are the PPMs that he charges, this is how he like, does stuff. And then he comes to like base fee and he's like, base fee uh, set to zero. There's research that explains it very well. It's obvious, right? It's an no brainer, <laughs> right? Um, and a lot of people have followed not only Carsten, but also followed our research and followed our results. But obviously, um, if you have an, an an option that is like, hey, do you want to change something? And you know, it, it, it almost seems like, and I don't want to get too political here, but, you know, like gun laws or abortion rights, like th- those are these questions that are very easy to polarize, right? Because you're like, yes, I like this. No, I don't like this, right? And you can have a very firm opinion on those without like going into all the like difficulties that are behind this, right? So, uh-huh. and and obviously the people who who set zero base are just trusting in many cases us and our results or the research results that have been there in the past, right? So, yeah, I guess it's just like a process of how society finds a certain consensus on something or agrees on something. That, that's my feeling. I'm not sure.
1: And What was the idea of having a base fee as this like kind of default setting before your research yeah. came out? Yeah,
0: so um, that is actually uh, something that we asked us, ourself, <laughs> right? So I couldn't find anything. So I went on Stack Exchange, which is a place where you can ask technical questions. And I was asking, why is there a base fee or why was the base fee included to the protocol? Like, is there a good reason for it? Right? And the question wasn't answered for quite some time. And then I pinged it, like I sent it basically to a few lightning developers and be like, hey, do you have a thought on this? And then uh, Rusty Russell uh, from, from Blockstream was kind enough to basically answer that question and say, um, well we had a discussion at that time some people wanted like no fee some people wanted fee something like and i'm blowing up the answer like i think he was much shorter on stack exchange but he basically said there was a discussion around this and um regular payment providers usually have a pay fee and the fee rates would seem reasonable so we did it like it's basically mm. like an arbitrary choice that we did right um, is
1: that to reflect like like when you say regular payment providers you mean like the you know, Visa may charge like stuff like that plus yeah. 30 cents. Yeah, something like this. Exactly. Interesting. And so now I right. and, and, kind of think you can do it without the base fee at all.
0: Yeah, on the Lightning Network, um, stuff gets a lot more easy if we have linear problems and if we remove the base fee, it's a linear problem. And since we have so many problems on the Lightning Network anyway, I highly advocate for <laughs> let's remove it. And, you know, to be frank, I mean, by now so many nodes have set their base fee to zero, that, for example, in the software that I provided, I only compute all the like candidate paths on the zero base fee graph. So if you want to earn a routing fee, you better set your fee to zero because like, I'm going to sling large payments with my software over the network, right? And on large payments, you earn a really nice yield on your PPM, right? Like if you have a PPM of, let's say, 500 and I send like 10 million satoshis along this, uh, you earn like a nice juicy... 5,000 yeah. Satoshis if I calculated this correctly now. <laughs> so So
1: you, you know what I mean, right? It's like, yeah. Yeah, so now if the entire Lightning Network, I think I think today 40 to 47% of the Lightning Network nodes and capacity are using a zero, zero base fee. Mm-hmm. If everyone was using a zero base fee today and we could just flick a switch, do you think there would be any changes to reliability on the network uh, from like a, a consumer end, like if I'm if I'm just using the network as yep. a regular consumer, would I notice any changes?
0: So um, what what I already tried to explain last year is initially this change for zero base fee doesn't change anything at all. <laughs> Right, uh. like I remember on the very first days when the paper came out, some people were like, "Yeah, I set my base feed to zero, and I have the feeling I see more routing traffic." I'm like, "This is not how it works, right?" <laughs> because obviously, as a sender, you need to have the software that actually computes the in cost flow, and it's only uh, until this week that I actually for the first time released software incomplete where you can play around with this. Uh, and even for that software, it's it's very hard to do it if you're not an expert. Like I deliberately made the software a little bit more complicated to use so that only experts initially would start doing this. Though I highly encourage all of them to do it, right? So um, so so this is a process, right? But as soon as the wallets and the router, like the sending nodes, use this kind of software, then of course having more channels with zero base fee is more liquidity on the network and changes something, right? So So the zero base fee thing... From day one on, was always like a long-term commitment to support routing, right? Like initially, somebody said, "Rene, your results are nice, but we need zero base fee." But unfortunately, ninety-five percent of the network don't have zero base fee, so your results are pointless. Like, well, people can change that, right? And people did, <laughs> right? But yeah. but to to answer your other question, is it better if we have more liquidity on the network? That's a really tricky one. So if you look into game theory, I, I think already in the seventies there was this German mathematician. Uh, called Brass, and he came up with this thing called the Brass Paradoxon. I don't know if you have ever heard about this, but maybe your listeners haven't. So so let me elaborate on this a little bit. So the Brass Paradoxon is this phenomenon that when you have a street network and you have traffic in the street network, right? Like you, mean, you might, for example, have like a big city and people commuting to the city every day. Right. You can measure the demand of traffic. Right. And you could observe that certain roads are stuck every morning. And then somebody could have the idea of, hey, let's build a bigger road. (laughs) Okay, so this obviously has happened in the past. What has also happened in the past is that people have built a bigger road, and afterwards we observed more congestion, which is completely counterintuitive to, to in first order, right? Because you would say, hey, if you have a bigger road, you have a highway, you can drive faster. Well, what you neglect there is the selfish behavior of the people who say, oh, this is a bigger road, I would take maybe a slight detour to take the faster route, right, so now more traffic actually is being attracted to this road, and you have congestion because it's overloaded again, right, so, so we had situations in the past where big roads actually have on purpose a lower speed limit, or maybe are even blocked on purpose to make flow control, right, so... This is very similar on the Lightning Network, right? If, if, if you don't think about the problem hard enough, you might say, I just open a large channel and that's very good for the network, right? But the large channel might be very attractive and might get jumped, right? And then of course, some people come and say, yeah, but then I can increase the fees, right? Sure, right, it's a game, right? But what I'm saying is, more liquidity is not necessarily a good thing. It, it may be, right? But, but it depends, right? It's really complicated and, um, uh, to me actually it's an open research question because this entire brass paradox phenomenon doesn't translate specifically or directly to to how lightning works and uh, luckily i have uh, two summer of bitcoin projects or two students for one summer of bitcoin project working on this for the next 12 weeks um so so i hope we really get some uh results there um yeah interesting
1: so in this example of the roads does expanding the road make it actually a worse experience like from a, from a speed perspective then yeah. or, or is it just like not as much of an improvement as you would expect no no it can make it worse it can, it can make, make it make worse, it worse. Wow.
0: and it has been observed in several cities in several countries it has been observed over and over again and i think this like german mathematician Bruss was the first to formally prove why this can happen like under which conditions does that happen, right? So you can actually even predict this to to, to happen. And it's like, as I said, it's completely counterintuitive, right? You have congestion, you just make a second lane, you allow faster traffic, and now you have even more congestion.
1: Like, how did that happen? Yeah. So now if you were the traffic controller of the Lightning Network, and you had full full reign, full authority here, how would you direct, how would you try and lay out the grid or this kind of network to optimize for payment flows. So
0: you are asking one of the best questions to some degree that I have been asked on a podcast ever. <laughs> I have to say this because I am not in this position and I should not be in this position, right? The entire idea and purpose of the Lightning Network is that we want to build a decentralized network, right? And and the the interesting observation is, Um, when you have this network, and let's assume you have this, like, godlike person who could do all this flow control. They could basically study this problem and do flow control, and they would basically tell people, hey, this is how the network looks like, but you, you don't take the highway. Like, even though you wanted to, but today you're going to take a detour so that the highway for the others does not congest, right? So what what such a, like, um, king of the network would do... (laughs) it would deliberately give some people a solution that is not optimal for those people to increase the overall common welfare or the social welfare. This is how it's being called in the literature, right? Whereas on the Lightning Network, we have the situation where everybody just does this selfishly, Uh right? And if everybody does this selfishly, the solution that is being found is usually not the global optimum that I could find if I could control everybody. And the difference is what we call the price of anarchy. Like it's a term in scientific literature. And you can actually for for many networks quantify what is this price of anarchy. And what I currently don't know is how high is the price of anarchy in the Lightning Network. I just don't know this. That's part of the Summer of Bitcoin project to find out. Because if the price of anarchy is small enough, then we are very happy. Like we're very happy to pay a certain price of anarchy (laughs) if we don't need this like central controlling kind of person to find good routes. Mm-hmm. But if if the game of the lightning network of routing is structured mathematically in a way that the price of anarchy is arbitrarily large, then of course it's really, really bad because the network is going to like naturally congest. Interesting. Are there parallels and,
1: and, here between like what you see in uh, maybe like capitalist societies like I think the US versus like China where it's like in the US everyone's kind of like acting in their own self-interest is very like Liberty first freedom and everyone has their own uh, you know strong property rights and like we have the ability to like look after ourselves and all of a sudden like you know maybe it's not an optimal situation if there was a king ruling over the land but everyone has the freedom to do what's in their self-interest Versus you know another society where it is ruled by a dictator and there's you know strict rules on what you can and can't do, and someone's like overseeing and planning the network is that mm-hmm. is that a, a comparison that I can make? do you think
0: So I have lived in China for almost two years, and I have lived in the United States for one year. okay so I kind of know both countries okay. um, and I can tell you there are severe differences, severe differences, right. Um, for, for example, in China, when I lived there, initially there was no KYC when you entered an internet cafe. Like you could just go there and sit down on a computer and surf around. Mm-hmm. Um, but while I was living there, they basically released a law that now there is KYC. Wow. Right? And when I wanted to go to an internet cafe, if they didn't see my passport, I would not touch a computer. This law, I was traveling in this moment when they released this law. Right? So I was basically every day in an internet cafe. Yeah. Right. And I was traveling not in Beijing. I was traveling very far in like rural areas. Like this law was active within a couple of days, like everywhere. Right. It's like ama- like to some degree, really amazing and scary how quickly the, the Chinese people can enforce a law. Right. Uh-huh. Um, and and there's hardly any protest. Huh. Right. It's just happening. Right. It has been decided, and then we're gonna like go and comply. It's probably been decided because it's good for everybody. That's the assumption, right? And everybody just like goes along. Um, In the United States, and I think also in Germany, I mean, if you, for example, think about the Corona situation, like vast amounts of protest, right? (laughs) And of course you can say this protest is good because you have your rights to object and you have your like liberty, right? But I think I'm, I'm, I'm not saying something wrong if I say that this protest comes at a certain price. I'm not saying that this price is like too high or too low, right? I'm I'm not even in the in the position of like evaluating this because th- those are generally hard questions. I mean, of course you find people who are very much pro-liberty who would say this price cannot be high enough, right? And you would find people who are very like socialist who say it's of course way too high. But but I think people could observe that these protests have a certain price connected to them, right?
1: Yeah, there's trade-offs. So
0: there's trade-offs, right? And I mean, obviously, if you look into economic theory, there are things that are called market failure, right? Similar, you have state failure, right? And you could also argue that in communist countries, you might have state failures, right? So, I mean, these are generally hard questions. And I I don't think I'm in the position that I could answer them in one way or the other uh, determined, determinedly. It's it's like literally hard. Um, I I can just say I have seen both sides and I have seen pros and cons on both sides. Um, Yeah,
1: yeah. So now, if we look at the Lightning Network as this, like, if we use America as an example for the Lightning Network, where it is distributed, decentralized, everyone can can choose, you know, to to take their own self-interest into account. Um, do you see a? Do you see someone building a solution that is like a digital payments network first, that is structured in a way where there is a ruler, a single ruler? and and sure. I don't think about like. I think I think Visa and some of the other networks that that have existed in the past maybe are not entirely digital networks in that capacity, but do you see someone else stepping in? Maybe this is a CBDC, maybe this is uh, another blockchain. Um, do you see there being a, you know, in in this example of using the U.S. and China, um, is if the U.S. is the lightning network, will there be a China? So 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 I think.
0: So 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 I think what 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 I have learned while living in China is um and I was criticized very heavily by my German friends when I said this in public right um but I, I will say this in public again because that was my experience like democracy is nice, but what is far more important than democracy is actually that you have checks and balances like a division of power right you have certain Institutions that control each other, right? And it doesn't necessarily, that was my statement that I was criticized being heavily for, like it doesn't necessarily have to be in a de- democratic fashion as soon as you have these checks and balances and a working like system of like leveling the gaming playing field, right? So I think this is something that attracts me very much to the Lightning Network and Bitcoin because this is also a very neutral technology. And what my feeling is a lot of people have difficulties to to understand i'm not talking about bitcoiners i'm mainly talking about no coiners here <laughs> is they intuitively think that a neutral thing might be something good because like it's neutral you know it's nice but obviously neutral can also allow bad actors to be very powerful right um and I mean, if you look, for example, at the Internet, it's also decentralized, or at least the, the World Wide Web, it's also a permissionless, decentralized system. I mean, everybody can run a web server and everybody can run a web client, right? Yet, for people, it turned out to be very useful and helpful to have things like Google, Facebook, Twitter, all those like heavily centralized services. Where people later then go and say, "Hey, cancel culture! You censor something on on i Twitter." I'm like, yeah, but why did you use it in the first place? Like, it was always clear that this could happen, right? So, so, so what I'm trying to say is, is, um, if you have a permissionless system, it's in my opinion almost, in, inevitable that some centralizing powerful powers will come, forces will come. Right, I mean, right now in Bitcoin, you could say those are the exchanges, uh-huh. right? They, to some degree, the gatekeepers. And on Lightning, I would assume at some point in time, this will be service providers.
1: Yeah. yeah. Now, I want to finish this off. I know we're running out of time, but I want to sure. finish off with some limitations of the Lightning Network. Um, and I want to understand, like, you know, we talk about how great the Lightning Network is on this show all the time. And, and every guest comes on and, and there's some fascinating projects being built. But I know the network's not perfect. And mm-hmm. I know you're doing some like really technical research and figuring out some of those deficiencies and flaws and, and things that can be improved. Uh, and we'd love to just finish off with just a high level of like, what are some of the, the things sticking out to you that the mm-hmm. Lightning Network needs to fix, needs to improve, needs to build upon?
0: Yeah, so, so I think most of them I have already mentioned during the show, right? So for example, we don't have reliability built into the protocol. Right, currently, Service providers are trying to fix this for us, but this, of course, given the entire discussion that we just had about like centralizing forces, gives them a tremendous power because they solve a problem that the protocol would not solve, right? So I would argue on the protocol side, we need more reliability for this to be useful for people. The other thing is this entire game theory of like selfish routing and Rust paradox, on, right? So you could have like natural congestion emerge, like maybe if the Lightning network reaches a certain size. I mean, it's certainly better than not having a Lightning network and doing everything on chain, but I am not sure how far this will actually scale and how the behavior of people has to be and how the routing nodes are like helping users to like do the flow control, right? So, so I think there is a certain um, limitation if you if you go to my Git repository where I publish the code for making like really fast payments with large sums, like large amounts, um, what you will see is one way of achieving this is, um, before I do the computation, I do not only throw away the edges that don't charge um, a base fee, but I also throw away edges that are either too small or too expensive with a fee rate, right? Because I already know they will most likely not be part of the solution, right? But one consequence of this is, is That the larger your channels are, the more liquidity you provide, the higher PPM you can actually charge to still be included into the computation, right? Which gives us a huge, the rich get richer effect and centralization effects because you just have this economic of scale, right? So so I would argue there are a vast amount of um, limitations that may be built into the protocol that we might not have seen yet, right? Um, The stuckness payments, right? Um, that, that we should work on and that we really need to like do
1: more research and try to fix right yeah. this has been a fascinating discussion uh, I learned so much and I'm, I'm glad we got a chance to do this um, it, where can people go to learn more about you and the work you do
0: um so I have my website which is ln.rene-pickard.de. Um, there I usually list at least all the like papers that I write and the results that I do. I mean obviously you can go to my GitHub repository where I'm trying to like once in a while publish some code, right? So as a researcher I'm often looking at like theoretical things and then I might write a paper eventually or I might provide some code, but I'm not like hacking on a daily basis, so that's a little bit of a like pity. Um usually I share a lot of my thought process on Twitter. So it's actually really funny. So for example, um, with this uh, uh, optimally reliable, reliable payment flow paper, um, I was sharing on Twitter that I found the optimal solution. And I was like basically asking like, hey, should I sell this to a company or should I found a company? Like, And people were throwing VC money at me and we're like, hey, do you want to do this for us? Like, Because everybody understood it's a pain point, right? But the funny thing is like, What nobody knew is that I already, within the last month, had basically sent six tweets where I basically hinted to all the research that was necessary to to do this. So in our paper, we actually, in the appendix, listed all those tweets and basically kind of like, hey, look, (laughs) the information was out there all the time if you had listened carefully, right? So so I'm not saying that everything that I rant about on Twitter is reasonable, right? Sometimes I'm just also misleading, but at least my thought process is kind of like transparent there. Um,
1: Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you for taking the time, and I uh, hope hey, you can again soon. Sure. Welcome to the Lightning Round presented by Zebedee, your portal into the world of Bitcoin gaming. The Zebedee app, that is Z-E-B-E-D-E-E, is a full-featured Lightning wallet and allows you to earn Bitcoin for playing games. Now, I thought it'd be fun to spice things up a bit, so if you go download the Zebedee app, you'll get a chance to compete against me and earn some extra Sats. Each month, I'll be playing a different Zebedee game. And you can find them all in the Zebedee app. Uh, but this month, I'm going to play Seru Toby. Now, my high score on Seru Toby is currently 625 meters on flyby mode. So if you go download the Zebedee app and beat my high score, send me a screenshot of it on Twitter, as well as your Zebedee gamer tag, and I'll send you some extra stats. Good luck. All right, in the last seven days, you guys sent in 10,738 sats. Eight different supporters sent in uh, two or three new messages. We also got a number of comments from Lightning address senders. So now that I have a Lightning address, um, I have a different tab to track the number of people that send in comments using the Lightning address, so non-Fountain users. Um, So we got a couple of those as well. Um, I'll run through those first. We have a comment that came in earlier this morning. It says, "Great website. Uh, my website has a meta tag uh, for my Lightning address. So if you're using something like Alby, you can uh, you can send sats through my website or watching any of my YouTube videos for this podcast." Um, also got a comment from uh, a Lightning address as well. It says, "Thanks for the DID YouTube vid," and that's in response to episode 45. Uh, with Daniel Buckner. As far as the uh, Fountain comments go, we have a couple other Fountain comments. Uh, Jeffrey says, great show, um, in response to episode 45, with Daniel Buckner. Sent in 2,450 sats, another 2,450 to Daniel Buckner. Um, And Mary Oscar says, great episode, and sent in the same amount to myself and the same amount to Daniel. Let's go through the top five supporters of the week. These are fountain supporters. First is Mary Oscar, 4,361 sats. Jeffrey sent in 2,450. An anonymous Breeze user sent in 1,948. stemr 42 sent in 816. And Bradley Chambers sent in 432 sats. Thank you to everyone who keeps sending in sats. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Let me know what you think. And uh, I'm excited for you guys to see the next few guests that I have coming up. Talk soon.